do have good news. We actually have air conditioning in the sanctuary and we have electric in the sanctuary uh, this week. And so everyone's feeling very comfortable. Uh, you know, it's just like, what, what, what's going to be thrown at us next? Uh, COVID and everybody's removed from the sanctuary, the no air conditioning, no electric. I thought when I came in today, we might not have a pulpit or the organ might have sprung a pipe or something. I, I don't know, but everything is well, though. We're moving in the right direction again. Hey, this is uh, really the, the uh, first opportunity I have had to thank many of you publicly for uh, the, the love that you extended to our family uh, at the passing of my father at the end of May. Your friendship and kind words and prayers, they were deeply appreciated as uh, we watched my 92-year-old dad uh, attempt to recover from a fractured hip and then uh, contract COVID-19 in his rehab center and then lose the battle uh, against that infection. And in the midst of that hard time, your encouragement meant so much to us. It's a remarkable gift having brothers and sisters in Christ like you who, who so deeply love. Love makes an enormous difference in the midst of hardship and suffering, just as Michael Balboni shared with us last week in the last uh, part of his sermon on the first half of chapter of first Peter. So as we turn to the second part of chapter four, the second half, uh, let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather throughout this world uh, in this context, to, to hear your word proclaimed, to enjoy the blessing of the family of God and the ways in which we're connected together. Lord, uh, it's always been this way. You've been in heaven. We've been here. We've not been together. But Lord, we long for the day when we gather again in this place. And indeed, when we gather and see you face to face in, on that last day. When you remake the heavens and the earth. To that end, Lord, now bless our preparation for that as we hear the word of God. Uh, consider it in our lives, and apply it to what is to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually, the uh, expression that we find from Peter to start this section off is an expression of that kind of love. Uh, he says in our passage today, he, he says, dear friends, dear friends, that's that's from the Greek word agapetoi, which, you know, agape, you've heard that before. Agape, it means love. It, the word might even be better translated as uh, beloved, uh, as the ESV does, or the King James, RSV, mo most actually uh, go in that kind of direction. Uh, it, it means that these are those I dearly love. You see, Peter dearly loved those to whom he was writing. He wanted to offer word after word of encouragement because of what was unfolding in their lives in the face of the suffering that confronted them. He, he wanted to help 
them shape a Christ-centered, faith-based response to such suffering. And so two weeks ago, uh, Julian Linnell uh, shared with us from chapter 3 what Peter wrote uh, about focusing on Christ, that Christ uh, suffered and, and following his example and seeing that he was victorious over the suffering that he faced and the encouragement that was present there in knowing uh, that Christ has gone before us. Last week, Michael teased out Peter's encouragement uh, from chapter 4, the first part, uh, reminding us that God is with us in the midst of suffering, uh, that he's transforming us, shaping us, uh, refining us, making us more holy. Uh, And and he reminded us again how love and unity is like a balm. It gives us a steely backbone as we walk through hardship and trial together as the family of God. Today I want to raise another significant word of encouragement that's laced throughout Peter's letters and shapes and forms everything he writes to these churches who were suffering persecution. It wasn't just Peter's perspective. It was Paul's perspective as well. It was John's perspective. The writer of Hebrew, the whole New Testament uh, held on to the perspective that uh, we will consider today in light of suffering, in light of what was unfolding in their day. And we can actually see it beginning to emerge from the very first verse that we're looking at, chapter uh, Chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that has come on you as though something strange was happening to you. Well, let me ask, why would they be surprised by hardship? Why would Peter need to say that? Why would they be surprised by hardship? Let me ask, why are you surprised by the hardship and suffering and persecution that you face at times. Well, you might first think, well, you know, it's probably they're they're rallying around the health and wealth gospel, you know, that false teaching that that if you accept Christ in your life, all of life's troubles disappear. Uh, In fact, God promises you health and wealth once you come to him and accept him. No problems from that point forward. But if you listen to what Michael shared last week about the suffering that was present in in first uh, that first century Roman Empire, you know that that kind of thinking was the furthest thing that could have been on the mind of the churches then. They knew when they accepted Christ that they would bear a cross. There were no benefits. There were no worldly benefits to following Christ at that point. It was sacrifice. You had to count the possibility that everything you had would be lost if you earnestly followed Christ in that culture at that time. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it was uh, an issue of bad theology that raised that question for Peter. Well, maybe it was just simply a reason, you know, the, a simple reason like, in, in the verses before, Peter was telling uh, the churches to be kind, to, to follow the law, be humble, care for others, bless others. And so 
you know, maybe their surprise is that they're doing those things, but people are still not treating them well. Uh, you ever have somebody like that in your life where, you know, you, you do everything you can to win them, to encourage them, to say a good word to them, to bless them, to serve them, and, and, and they just kind of treat you lousily. Like, what's, what is that about? Peter actually uh, mentions that kind of perspective uh, in, in passing. Verse th- chapter 3, verse 13, he says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Right? It doesn't make sense. Maybe that's why they're surprised. But then he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear threats. Do not be frightened, but in your heart reserve Christ as Lord. So yeah, maybe they're surprised because they're being nice and people aren't being nice back to them. But it's not just be not being nice back to them, right? I mean, this is, it's not just a non-responsiveness to kind gestures. Peter says, do not fear their threats. Uh, Don't be frightened of them. He calls what they're going through here a painful trial. Their lives were at stake. People wanted to harm them. People wanted to put them to death. Where is, where's that virulent opposition coming from? You know, maybe it was actually the surprise of the intensity of the opposition they faced. So Peter, you know, says to them, look, don't be surprised of this painful trial you're, you're suffering. Why? Well, because Jesus already warned you that that's what would happen. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hates me first. If you belong to the world, if It would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you, Jesus says. So maybe Peter is saying to them, look, Jesus told you that if you follow him, you're going to be hated because they uh, hated me, Jesus says said they're going to persecute you and again I'm sure this is part of it they shouldn't be surprised because of that reason as well Jesus swarmed them but there's still something behind all of this you know why such intensity why were they hating on Jesus so much why were they hating so much on this early church who were following Jesus there's another reason behind it. We find more clarity to this question in a couple other places in the letter that uh, Peter writes. Three other times in this letter he makes the same kind of statement, do not be surprised. But he doesn't make it negatively, do not. He actually makes it positively. He he says instead, Instead of saying, do not be surprised, he says, be alert and sober. Be alert and sober. That's the opposite of being surprised, isn't it? Of of being aware of what is going on. You know, you're not surprised if you know what's going on. So what were they supposed to be aware of? 
chapter 1, after talking about how the Old Testament prophet had spoken about all that was unfolding from the death and resurrection of Christ to his second coming, he says in verse 13, chapter 1, he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You see, being sober and alert had something to do with Jesus' second coming, his final return in relationship to all of which the prophets had taught. Chapter 5, Peter says, Be alert and sober mind, uh, and, and of sober mind. Listen, he says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast. You see, being alert and sober had something to do with satanic opposition, satanic persecution and suffering worldwide. And it had to do with the restoration of all things. Be alert and sober, Peter says. But the clearest statement about being alert and sober comes a little bit earlier in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Did you hear that? The end is near. Jesus is coming back. There's a significant worldwide satanic opposition unfolding, producing suffering. The end is near. What is Peter trying to tell the churches he's writing to? What are they supposed to be sober and alert about? He's telling them that they are living in the last days. Those are all the kinds of things that were supposed to happen in the last days. In the end times. And he drives this home, uh, his, this conclusion, he drives it home in a second letter. He writes to the churches. He writes to Second Peter, uh, it, it's in chapter 3. Uh, he writes to the churches in Second Peter chapter 3. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as a reminder to stimulate your, you to wholesome thinking. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Listen, here's what he says. He says, above all, he says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffers uh, and, and, and following their own evil desires. You see, above all, more important than everything else he wrote in both of his first and second letters, 
And underpinning everything he writes in both of them, he wanted those he dearly loved to understand that they were in the last days. And I know for some of you, uh, that may indeed be a surprise thing to hear. Because sometimes you hear teachings that, that encourage you to look for some future unique indicators that, you know, that when you see them, you know then you're entering into the last days. But that's not what Peter teaches He writes to the churches to tell them that they are living in the last days. Why would Peter believe that? Why would Peter believe that in his generation, in his time, and those he loved had entered into the last days? He he already told us in 2 Peter 3. We just read it a second ago. and, And actually, I mentioned it from 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 to 12. He believed it because the prophets had foretold what would happen in the last days. The Messiah would come. He would be from the line of David. He would redeem his people. He would be exalted as king, established a new covenant with them. He would establish an everlasting kingdom. When the prophets spoke all these prophecies... It was always with the understanding that that was the sign that uh, the last days has come. That was the last days. When those things happened, you were in the last days. So we read earlier in, you know, earlier in the service, uh, Emma read for us Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. It talked about the ex- end time expectation of the resurrection, He's saying that those who were dead would be raised to everlasting life. That, that that was something that would unfold in the last days, according to Daniel. So what happens? Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And it says, the tomb of many others burst open as well. What conclusion are you supposed to reach? Except, it, these are the last days. The resurrection presence of kingdom of God was here. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out upon the apostles, they began to speak in foreign tongues. Uh, Who does Peter end up quoting? He quotes an Old Testament prophet. The prophet Joel, he says, listen, this is what he says, fellow Jews, all of you who are living in Jerusalem, let me explain this day. Listen carefully to what I say. This is what the prophet Joel said, in the last days, you hear that? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter as well as John and Paul, if we had time to look at their writings, all of the New Testament writers wrote from the perspective that they were in fact living in the last days upon the death and resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of God's Spirit. We've entered 
what the Bible understands as the last days. So Peter says here, do not be surprised by the painful trial you're going through. Well, why shouldn't they be surprised? Well, because the hardship they were enduring, it was all a part of the prophetic package of what would transpire in the last days. Again, again, Emma read this just a moment again. Go, uh, Daniel chapter 12, she, she read, At that time, meaning the last days, at that time, there will be a time of distress and tribulation such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. And that time of distress would be followed by a final judgment. Daniel 12 puts it this way, multitudes who, who are asleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt. That's judgment, final judgment. And so Peter, in our passage, chapter 4, 12 to 19, what does he do? He talks both about a painful trial, a, 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 actually more accurately, if you look at the Greek at it, it, it's a fiery trial or a fiery uh, ordeal as the updated version of the NIV writes. He, he talks about this, this trial, tribulation, a fire, and he talks about end time judgment. Dear friends, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. When you think of fire in the Bible, where do you usually go? End time judgment. And so in verse 17, Peter goes on to say, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who don't obey the gospel of God? What judgment do you think he's talking about? Well, it's a reference to the final judgment, which in some way, even in Peter's day, was beginning to play itself out in the lives of the churches in the midst of this fiery ordeal, this painful trial in which they're going through. So, above all the counsel he offers in his first and second letters to the churches, the most important thing he wanted them to understand, to, to see their suffering in light of, was in light of the fact that they were living in the last days. You know, when we realized that my dad was unlikely to recover and, and that he was entering into a period of his last days, you know, all of a sudden our perspective changed. And the things we talked about were different. We saw things differently as a family. We talked about things differently. Things became more clear. They became more purposeful in our interactions together. What difference would it make to you if you took to heart that you and we as a church, we're living in the midst of the last days? 
What perspective change would that bring upon the way in which you view your life and what you're doing and the ways in which you are going about? How would your perspective about suffering change? Well, what difference does it make to think of suffering uh, in light of the last day? Well, listen to Peter's perspective. You know, what does he encourage? He says, rejoice in the sufferings which have come upon you in these last days. Well, that's not the usual kind of reaction to suffering, is it? To, yay, happy, joyful. That's that's usually not what we do. Why rejoice? First, I would say it's because this end time suffering has purpose and meaning behind it. And this is nothing more important. Your suffering is not pointless. It is not senseless. It is not worthless in light of the last days. Peter says, rejoice in as much as you, listen, participate in the sufferings of Christ. You see, Christ's sufferings had purpose, moving redemptive history forward. His suffering, it it accomplished two things of extraordinary value And if you're suffering those things as well with him, it's all a package. What, what, what were these things of value that Christ accomplished through his suffering? First, his suffering broke the back of the reign of sin. Which, by the way, was another expectation of the last days. That sin's reign would be broken. So Peter writes in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body, listen, is done with sin. Part of the purpose of suffering is to break the back of sin, to refine us. To cause us to let go of everything else in this world that is melting away, that's passing away, that has no value, that will be burned up in that fire. To let go of all that. To, to purify our faith. To make us holy. You see, the end time process of restoration, what we're expecting, this restoration in the end time, it's already begun today as as we let go of sin and become more holy and righteous through these realities of suffering. We become radiant. We become glorious. The writer of Hebrews says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. And so it is with us. In some way, the suffering has individual purpose for you that 
proves your faith genuine as you hold on to him and the storm rages around and attacks you and beats you down physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, but you hold on to Christ. That's the glory that one day you will see you held on and indeed everything you held on to was true. It's come to pass in the last days. But there's a second thing Christ accomplished. This is actually, I I think, kind of fun to think about. (laughs) He, through his suffering, he defeated and ultimately humiliated Satan. His death and resurrection, that was the pivotal, pivotal moment in a dramatic battle that had been waged since the garden by the powers and principalities of darkness against God's kingdom. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2. He says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It was Christ's suffering which defeated Satan. When we participate in Christ's suffering, in some way, we are participating in the defeat of the powers and principalities of darkness under Satan's rule in the last days. That's why he mentions Satan in the next chapter. Be alert and sober. What is it, what was it about Jesus' death that defeated Satan in such a spectacular way? It wasn't just the fact that Satan threw everything he had at Christ. Temptation, opposition, demon, uh, demonic legions, betrayal by his friends, torture under the Romans, death by a cross, and even all that suffering he went through, he still emerged victorious, resurrected, showing that he was the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. It wasn't all just that. Here's the most interesting thing, I think. The worst thing for Satan was that he was made a public spectacle by Jesus because of Jesus' posture of humility throughout all of that which unfolded in his suffering. He was the model of humility. He didn't pull rank. You know, he told Peter, I could call a thousand angels down right now if I wanted to, uh, as, as he was arrested in the garden. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't argue for his rights. He was obedient to the Father, even in all of his suffering, even until death. He took it all on himself with extraordinary humility. And you do know that's exactly why Satan was cast out of heaven. It was his pride. It was his lack of humility. It was because Satan believed his rights were violated. Angels, by God's decree, were given the role of servants of humans to take care of them. Uh, And this was an anathema to Satan. Drove him to oppose God. And from the time of Adam and Eve on, 
set us apart from him as his enemy. It was his pride which set the course of battle throughout history between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that, that, as I said, set Satan against us. And so how were the weapons of Satan, you know, those weapons he wielded, how were they defeated, the weapons of death and accusation and condemnation and sin, how were they disarmed? It was by a slain lamb. The weakest, uh, the, the most unpretentious animal that was even dead. How's that for humbling? How's that for humiliating? What a way to lose. What a spectacle. That is why throughout the end of the book, uh, throughout the end time book of Revelation, the image most often used to describe Christ is a slain lamb. How deliciously ironic and appropriate. And so that kind of gives us perspective in these last days and times. We're to follow the same path. Finishing up the humiliation of the powers and principalities of darkness through our suffering. Go ahead, Satan. Throw it all at us. Whatever it is. Opposition. Make my body, to, to, you know, uh, disease like he did with Job or or. Put me on, you know, on a stick and kill me. Whatever it is, bring it all on. But you know what? I'm sticking to Jesus. And I'm going to do it without crying out, oh, this is unfair, this shouldn't happen to me. I'm going to do it with a sense of humility, submitting myself to my creator, knowing that he indeed is bringing about in one day my resurrection, my restoration, my glory. There's a battle going on. You know, so often we, we just get into this, like, suffering that's all about me. It's not. It is. It involves you. But there's a broader spiritual battle that is unfolding with casualties and hardship and pain involved. The general is sending his soldiers with no delight on his part, by the way. He, he doesn't rejoice in our suffering as a general. Doesn't rejoice to send his soldiers he loves into battle knowing that some of them might suffer and die. But nevertheless, he sends us that we might in some spectacular way through our hardship and sacrifice and suffering like Christ be be tied to the defeat of Satan and his kingdom of darkness as the triumph of the kingdom of God occurs for all to see. And, and so he says rejoice that, that you're connected to Christ's suffering because it's not meaningless, it's purposeful. It has meaning what you're going through right now in these final days. But there's another reason to rejoice, too. You know why? Because it's the last days. You know, we're near the end. Uh, that means it's, it's coming to an end soon. It's Peter's way of saying, look, hold on. We're almost there. We, we're just about to make it. 
You know, he says in chapter 1, we suffer but for a little while, but soon he shall be revealed. The final days, that's what we're in. And, and it's the final day when he returns and restores everything, it, it, it will come. Is his counsel and comfort to the church. And well, that might not actually be a whole lot of comfort to you. It was a comfort to them to hear, but how about you? I mean, it's 2,000 years later and it doesn't seem like Christ has returned. Well, he definitely has come and his presence is here and he's pouring out his goodness and kindness and mercy in, in some already kind of way. The kingdom is here, but it certainly haven't reached the last day. And, and you know, what, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, what gives? You know, maybe it's another thousand years. Well, probably the best way to understand Peter's perspective of the nearness of Christ's return, he was basically saying, look, the final movement in redemptive history is here. The very next, there's nothing that stands between now and Christ's eventual return. In fact, throughout the Bible says we don't, we can't know when he's going to come so you've got to be ready all the time. He's going to come like a thief in the night, Peter says. You've got to be ready all the time. But it is truly the last days. And the next thing to happen in biblical history and redemptive history is Christ coming back. His imminent return. Why has it been that long? The delay actually didn't surprise Peter. He wasn't taken by guard. In fact, he talks about... A, an extended of time in thousands of years. He says, uh, addresses the, the people uh, in, in his second letter, he says, but do not forget this one, day, one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not, listen, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything will be laid bare. You heard that. Now, why is that? It actually gives a third purpose for our suffering during this extended trial. The last days are the time period in which the gospel is to reach the ends of the earth. All the nations are to be reached. And as you suffer, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. To anyone who asks, he, Peter says in chapter 3. And don't think Satan is celebrating this. That's why wherever the gospel goes, there is some kind of opposition, persecution that immediately pops up. But our example of kindness and service and genuineness and our, our, our perseverance and faith hanging on to Christ regardless of such persecution and hardship, it all gives an opportunity for us to speak the hope that we have. It's, an, it's interesting how wherever 
wherever there's persecution, that's where the church seems to be growing around the world. Michael shared a story last week of how such testimonies were lived out in the country of Georgia. Julian shared an equally compelling story from China. Well, Peter says, look, if you suffer, it shouldn't be like a murderer or a criminal or a meddler, but if you suffer for Christ, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. That's another reason to rejoice. You bear the name of Christ. Why do you think there's such a big fat target on you by Satan? Why are you in his crosshairs? I know we're in a world where living for Christ is it's increasingly uncomfortable to speak about Christ, to live for Christ, to express faith in Christ. But you bear the name of the ancient of days, the alpha and the Omega. You bear the name of the great I am. You bear the name of the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the light of the world. You bear the name of the Savior, the Redeemer, the bread of life. You bear the only name by which men and women can be saved. So don't be ashamed. Rejoice in that name. Stand up for that name. Speak about that name. Re revel in that name. So Peter tells the church to commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good in verse 19. That's just another last day reference, isn't it? He's not referring to creator in the sense of, you know, the faithful creator who made the world, though, of course, that's who he is. He's referring to the creator as the new heavens and earth, the one who's going to create the new heavens and earth, that you can trust him, that he's going to bring all this about. It's just about to come in reality, Paul, uh, Peter says, in, at the last day. So trust him. He's going to deliver on these promises. There's not going to be mourning or, or, or hardship or suffering. Trust him. Look forward to the new heavens and new earth and continue to do good in the name of Christ. So how about you? In your suffering, no matter what kind of suffering it is, this day or in the days to come that you might endure, can you trust him? Can you rejoice knowing that there's purpose behind this suffering in God's redemptive plan that's unfolding. Can you rejoice and praise God that you bear the name of Christ? And can you continue to do good with certainty that the heavens and earth, the new one, the new creation is even now coming about in these last days? as you participate in, in victorious suffering with Christ. May you do so this day. Amen.